You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Whether this is your first time on board or if you're a regular, thanks for joining us wherever you may be. My guest in this episode is Jason T. Smith, a very impressive chap. I think you'll agree. Jason has done not one, not two, but three related but separate things in the professional world that, to me, are very impressive. You'll hear a lot about Jason's story along the way, but you'll also notice that he doesn't want to get bogged down, patting himself on the back about what he's achieved. He's already looking at the next big thing. It really is a function of who he is. Through his career, Jason has noticed some fundamental flaws in the way we typically approach building a business and leading teams. Through trial and error and a lot of honest personal reflection, Jason has designed a better way. He's turned things outside in and upside down, and he tells a fabulous story along the way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason T. Smith. Jason T. Smith, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Hey, great to be here, David. Now, Jason, before we get started talking about the fascinating topic you're going to bring today, now I'm in Queensland, I'm a rugby league man, and when I read your name, Jason T. Smith, I can't help but think you were avoiding having the same name as the wonderful Jason Smith, who set alight rugby league grounds in the 90s and, and early 2000s. Is that what you're doing there, or am I completely wrong? No, you're exactly right. I can't tell you how many times there has been mistaken identity. And in fact, there's a a Jason Smith who's the Australian basketballer. Right. And then there's a Jason Smith who starred in the Neighbours TV show. How's that? And I have have gone and given keynote addresses to audiences where they expected (laughs) one of the other Jason Smiths. (laughs) Jason Smith, the rugby league player. And I've disappointed them every time. (laughs) In fact, I I spoke recently at an event and the other Jason Smith was in the room. Which one? Rugby league Jason Smith? The basketballer. Oh, okay. The basketballer. So I thought if halfway through I tanked, I'd just bring up the, uh, the real Jason Smith. And uh, recover that way. So <laughs> wheel him out. Oh, that's mate. I'm glad I'm not wrong about that because that that part of the conversation might have crashed and burned if you didn't know who <laughs> Jason Smith was. But you're fully aware of it. You're walking around in life with the burden of the last name Smith. I'm sure it, it is somewhat of a burden and and perhaps even a nice thing at the same time. Nobody ever asks me to spell my yep. surname when yep. I order a pizza. Let me tell you. Yep, that's what but I'm I- thinking. I did marry uh, a woman whose surname is Ischeveria from Brazil, and she went from one in the phone book to becoming a Smith, and uh, I think she regrets every day having become part of the clan. She went from special to being bland in one wedding ceremony. Very Very nice, mate. Well, look, I've just got to say, while we're on it, Jason Smith, one of my favorite rugby league players of that era, love the way he played. So do I. I love the way his brother played. He's one of these rare guys where he and his brother played played rugby league in the state, Queensland State of Origin team at the same time, Darren Smith and Jason Smith. So that's very cool. Although I think, is it Jason Smith's life took a bit of a turn for the worst a few years ago? Look, I can't tell you. I'm a Mexican. I'm, I'm uh, from Melbourne. So uh, okay. I grew up with Australian rules and married a Brazilian. It's you know the, the international game of football for me. So okay. I sort of just missed the code of rugby. We won't gossip about what happened to Jason Smith. But look, good to clear that up. Now, 
Jason T. Smith, your book, Outside In, Upside Down Leadership, is a fantastic read. And and just as we were talking about before we hit record, often in this show, we get people who are an expert at a particular element of leadership, and I really get them un- to unpack that. And if you put together all of my episodes, you have this wonderful wide view of all of these experts contributing to the conversation. Yours is actually a little bit different what I really love about your story is, is exactly that. It's the story of what you did with your business. So just to catch everyone up to speed, you are a physiotherapist by tra- training, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and, and you created a little empire of physiotherapy franchises called Back in Motion Health Group, and it was kicking along really well. And a, a lot of people would have been exceptionally satisfied with what they've achieved, but not you. There was a morning where you woke up and, in fact, you came back from holidays and you just decided that it was all a bit basic. It was, wasn't was going the way you thought it could. You had this grand new vision and you just took your company by the scruff of the neck and made it happen. That's the story I want to hear tonight. And and the other thing that you do really well in your book is you say, look, here's my story and and this is what we went through. And you were really honest and raw about what you went through. That you said, hey, this this might not be right for you, dear reader. This this might not be the lessons that you want to learn in my story. But there are a whole bunch of really solid, transferable principles that have come out of my story, and you do a really nice job of clarifying those. And they are transferable. They are these generic things. Well, not generic. They are these broad lessons that we could all take something from. So, have I got that part of the story right? Am I am I correct up to now, Jason? You've done a good job. It's really 200 pages of only two years in the story of our business, and it's uh, it's the interesting bit. All right. Well, let's let's go through that stunt. Tell us about the story of your business because you know what I'm impressed about right from the start, mate, and and uh, you don't even get to this in your book. You, the story starts well after this. A lot of people would be happy to be a physiotherapist. It was the cool occupation when I was at school. All the cool, smart kids who were good at sport were going into physiotherapy to university. It was a wonderful destination, and a lot of people would be happy to land there, but but not you. You created an empire that took you away from treating people and becoming an entrepreneur, businessman, empire builder. Can you, actually, before we get started on the rest of the story, cover that bit for us. What separated you from your fellow physiotherapists early in your career? Look, it's interesting that uh, I always, from a, from a young age, in fact, from about the age of 10, had this determination to go into the medical field. And I uh, had a little defining moment as a young fella where I was sitting on the uh, beanbag in front of the cartoon connection. Everybody else was asleep on a Saturday morning. And those images of World Vision advertisements came on the TV of young African children, distended bellies and you know, mm. swollen faces and flies buzzing around them. And I just couldn't reconcile what I was looking at. There was just something unfair and completely unresolvable in what I was uh, viewing on the TV. And I remember making a little a pledge as a little fella that I wanted to do something about that. And so for the next decade, I grew up with an intention of becoming a health professional to work in the developing world. And it wasn't until many years after I graduated, I'd worked in India, I'd worked in Cambodia. My wife and I, she was a nurse. We, um, we had looked at all of these short-term opportunities, but none of them seemed to convert into a enduring project 
that we came back and had to do the unthinkable, David. We had to get a job. We had to work yeah. for a living. Yeah. And I uh, had a, a miserable couple of years in the public health system feeling like just wasted effort. There was just uh, just poor health outcomes. And so I had my entrepreneurial seizure, which is that yeah. idea of uh, I can do this better myself on my own. And I went into the garage and I started my first consulting suite. And uh, it was a very humble beginning. But our determination there was to treat patients like a whole person and not just an yeah. injured body part. Yeah. And word spread. Within three or four months, we had outgrown the little garage at home. We'd moved into medical premises and uh, we were on our way. Within a couple of years, we had one of the largest practices in the country. I was 24 years of age and well and truly wow. out of my debt. I had wow. employed staff and half a million dollars worth of client fees, stressed. In fact, I describe it as my prison without bars. I, I really yeah. just didn't know what I was doing, what, up, what was up and what was down. And uh, that was my second defining moment. I actually ran away from the business. I employed a Kiwi. He uh, took over the practice and I shaved my head, bought a combi van and traveled around Australia with my wife. And wow. we realized at that point that uh, there's no use running away from this. If we wanted to really make a difference in the developing world, we should go home, scale this business and turn it into an economic engine that could uh, really um, not just send one or two people into these disadvantaged communities, but maybe tens or even hundreds. And it's another story, but uh, that was the real passion behind starting the Back in Motion Health Group. Wow, that is a great story. And that's the prequel to your book Correct. because you don't even cover that in the book. And it's an amazing story in itself. So look, there's there's two points at which so many people would have been satisfied with what you did, yet for you, it was only the beginning of, of the dream. So many people would be satisfied with being a physio, and then so many people would be satisfied with, at 24, having the biggest physiotherapy practice in the country, but it just didn't go close to scratching your itch. Tell us about that itch and, and tell us how that came into to reality through your group back in motion and and the journey that you went through there? So there's always a long story, but let me give you the short version. We had one very successful practice, and uh, before long I realized that one way to retain quality staff was to consider giving them some equity or ownership in the practice. Yeah. But the traditional model of partnership was flawed in so many ways that it just made more sense to help one or two of them start their own practices and uh, I'll just take some equity in their businesses. So why, why is the traditional model of partners so flawed? Give, give us the, the cliff notes on that. Yeah, the cliche scenario is you work 10 to 20 years for somebody else to earn the opportunity to even start the partnership conversation. At that yeah. point, you pay three times what it's worth yeah. for a third of what you should have, and you're still a minority partner yeah. in a business where you have no control. What are people and, doing? Well, because they think they it's don't the have any other options. They yeah. think there are no other options, David. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Is law and consulting, is that, is, are they the industries in which it happens the most? No, look, well, in legal firms, they've got a different partnership model. There are right. equity partners and salaried partners. Right. In consulting, it's probably a little bit more commercial. But in physiotherapy, the size of the pie is not that big. And if you cut it up into too many pieces, you just don't have enough 
enough return for the individuals. And so we tended to not see rich or enriching partnerships in our industry. Somebody once said the only form of partnership is a sinking ship. Um, <laughs> but uh, certainly it didn't appeal to me. And uh, so we, we got tapped on the shoulder and suggested to us that franchising might work for our situation. And uh, it was a bit of a rogue thought. In fact, for many years, it was the dirty F word. Nobody would want to franchise healthcare because we don't have a product. Mm. There's no widget that you can base a consistent service on. It's all about professional services and, and rapport with your clientele. But what we decided was the best bit about franchising was if we systemized the back end of the practice, so recruitment, HR, technology, marketing, payroll, etc. Because physios aren't trained in business. They are excellent clinicians, but terrible commercial operators. So this became the idea. So often where they fall down. When- Correct. Yeah. This became our idea, our point of difference to the industry. And uh, once we decided that we would franchise, it took us a couple of years to build some appeal around the idea because we were considered a bit of a cowboy at first. But then we did 14 practices in a couple of years and really launched onto the scene. How do you sell the value of a franchise to physiotherapists for whom their industry doesn't do franchise? They think (laughs) they're buying nothing. They might have even seen you as a snake oil salesman. What was it that you had to convince them of? We really had to appeal to the vision of what a collective would look like in its end form. So when we had enough geographical scale and enough brand value that we could bring clientele to their door and we could provide the back-end systems that allow them the lifestyle and the profitability they couldn't otherwise achieve on their own. But, of course, the first 10 that sign up are really doing that on a wing and a prayer yeah. because Were they we didn't desperate? have the credibility. Well, no, they, we just we didn't have the credibility then. We had no proof in concept. So who was it? Who, what sort of people were signing up first then when, the, when there were no – there were no reviews on the website. So here's the beauty of it. In most cases, our early adopters were our senior clinicians who worked for us on the payroll. Right. And they, they are the ones who you couldn't hoodwink. They knew the skeletons in the closet. They knew our, our flaws as well as our upside. But here they were toiling in our practices, seeing our passion for the disadvantaged and realizing, hey, we're like-minded. And uh, why be on the payroll when we can join in the uh, the equity play? Yeah. And we made it easy for them, David. We, we took most of the risk in the first few instances, kept it a low barrier to entry. And then for many of them now running many million dollars worth of client services in their local practices, it's, it's paid off. But of course, you've got to take the risk in the first instance. There's no doubt about it. So where in the story did the 70-50-100 strategy come along and and how did you start to sell that to your staff and, and get that strategy off the ground? So 750-100 is an idea that I had way back at the beginning, even before my second practice. And I'm, I'm a praying man, so I can remember sitting there meditating and just thinking about life and purpose and that idea of having 100 flagship practices with $50 million worth of revenue in seven states of Australia felt to me like the epitome of a scaled ethical business that could help make a difference in the developing world. So that idea was right back at the beginning. I just never told anybody. 
because nobody would believe me and I didn't want to sound like I'd been smoking something. <laughs> so I kept that to myself. We continued to grow the business through 14 practices and then we got to 40 practices and about two or 300 staff. And we'd done that with a very traditional business model, a board, a CEO, some senior managers, some support staff. And uh, it was about at this point that I took some self-appointed long service leave and uh, went to South America for three months to see my, my wife's family and realized that nobody else was going to cast this vision for 75100 if I didn't share it with somebody. And I came back from that trip determined to give it some oxygen, to let the world know, to make myself accountable actually to my staff that 75100 is something that I'd birthed many years ago and hadn't shared, but today was the day. And so my first day back at work, that was my intention. Let's what appeared at that time to double our group in three years, what had taken us 15 years to that point. Now, you shared this vision with your staff in a, in a really special way, a, an imaginative and a meaningful way. Tell us about that. So I thought I couldn't just let this be another staff meeting. Yeah. It would understate the importance and profundity of what I was commissioning. And also, I didn't want them to walk out and uh, run away. So what I thought I'd do, and in fact did, was send them all some mystery invitations, ask them to dress up to the nines so they all came in black tie. I had a stretch hummer waiting for them one morning in the parking lot of the office and uh, took them to a secluded chateau and spent a day unfolding to them the story, the dream, you know, the, the imagination of what we could achieve and kind of, you know, they needed a lift home because they didn't know where they were, so they couldn't <laughs> run away. Yeah. And uh, for many, many hours, we, we just sort of shared the possibilities and I let them ask the tough questions and muse on this whole idea and then leave them an invitation at the end of the day, an invitation to participate or if they wished to retreat with dignity and I would bless them off to another adventure. Yeah. But it had to be a profound moment for our team for them to capture the significance of what I was asking of them. You made it profound. You made it an event. In fact, a few episodes ago, I had Jen Jackson on the show, who's a, a communication expert. She wrote a cool book called How to Speak Human. And, and her first two chapters are about creating some curiosity and, and building some anticipation and then some surprise. And I couldn't help but think that you had done that perfectly with these mysterious invitations, the the demand of wearing black tie, picking them up in a limousine and then taking them on this before you got to your your secluded getaway, almost a retreat for your senior staff, you took them on a bit of a history tour of the company where you started at the garage in the, at the old house where you and your wife had started that very first practice. There's some real impact with selling your message because as you say, so often we may have just called a meeting and said, hey, I've had a great idea. Correct. And you know, it was all part of, I guess, uh, inviting them into the passion of the story. And to be able to stand where our first practice was, of course, we didn't own the place anymore, David. So we were really just crashing (laughs) somebody else's front yard. Uh, Fortunately for us, nobody was home. (laughs) And so we snapped a quick photo. And you know what that does is it just helps people realize that every story has a beginning. Those beginnings are humble and 
and modest and often very unspectacular, but we all get an opportunity to write our own story. And that was the invitation that day. Come and help me write the next chapter. I needed them, but they also needed me to set a higher bar and show them or project for them where we could go next. Somewhere along this journey, at the, at the very beginning, you had an epiphany about organizational structure and the way that good structure needs to support the identity of an organization and its goals and its strategy. What was it that you knew about organizational structure at the point of that epiphany? What had you done wrong in your organization before that? And, and what do you now know about the way that we habitually structure organizations and, and departments? I didn't know a lot, David, about structure. I, um, you know, I was a physiotherapist. I was an entrepreneur at heart, more of a street fighter than a corporate professional. And so I had just followed convention. Every time our business grew, I put more structure around it, more systems, more processes. Yeah. I followed all of the conventions of the typical corporate model. But I woke up one day and it was at about this same time as wanting to reimagine our growth curve. And I realized all of the creativity that had launched our business in the first place and all of that free thinking that is characteristic of an entrepreneurial organization had been suffocated by the traditional top-down hierarchical structure. And not because structure's bad. I mean, it had helped grow us from nothing to a $25 million business. So it wasn't bad. But what had happened was we had started to serve the structure mm. instead of the structure serving us as the heart of the organization. People are always at the hearts of organizations. And we got that bit wrong. We started to see structure as the master. And so we wouldn't take risks. We wouldn't pursue opportunities. We wouldn't stretch ourselves because the bureaucracy of our structure seemed to diminish that that ideal. And so what I needed to do was blow up the structure. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. You told the story of coming back from that holiday, you had this incredible vision, you had this plan to to sell the vision and, and get your guys to buy in or or humbly step out of the organization. But you also walked into a whole bunch of problems that were had been happening in your absence. There was infighting, there was finger pointing, and all those kind of things that come in largest organizations, which is what you had. What did you turn the structure into? I'm interested in how you would describe the way that you restructured your organization. Yeah. So I, I describe the implosion, that's the word I use, the implosion of that season of our business. It was people who were so constrained under that hierarchical structure that they stopped thinking and feeling and taking risks and they started to turn on each other. Countries who are at war with other countries tend to, you know, they, they form greater unity and solidarity. Countries who are at peace with the world have more civil war. And this was our civil war. We were pushing up against the titled managers of the organization who didn't know everything but acted like they did. And uh, so look, at the, the way I describe our new structure, which of course was not a single decision 
on a moment. It was a progression or an iteration of structures over a 12-month period. But I describe it not as a flat structure, not as an inverted pyramid or a matrix management style. In fact, we describe ours as a spherical model. In fact, to have a bit of fun with ourselves, it was a planetary model. Yeah. And uh, that's because if you think of an orb, there's no up or down. There's no left or right. There is just a collaboration of colleagues who are all working for the same purpose. And we really only wanted one team. And that was the namesake we gave to this model. One team. No departments, no divisions, no unions. It was one team made up of untitled colleagues who had very specific role profiles who could contribute to the shared goal. So it was a spherical organizational model. And uh, the one sentence definition is that we wanted to create an ecosystem of self-led, highly collaborative, and peer-accountable colleagues. And that took us two years to achieve. So you had to be patient. There's another interesting point that you make in your book. You're very open about yourself as a leader and the flaws that you have. And reading between the lines of the book, you can also see the the enormous strengths that you have as a leader. But you admit as a leader that at your worst, under pressure, you can be very demanding and have high expectations and want things done very quickly. So how do you calibrate that? You are still the boss. You're the CEO and the owner of this organization. How do you calibrate that against this description of a spherical organizational structure? So the truth is, I had to change more than anybody. Mm. So a lot of my executive team and senior managers, in the first instance, pushed against this restructure or what we call leadership revolution because they felt like they were losing authority, losing prestige, and it was a real blow to their ego. But I kept reminding them, I have to change more than anybody because I'm a sole director, sole shareholder of this organization. If anybody had an entitlement to make a unilateral decision, it was me, not just because of my fiduciary responsibilities, but because of true ownership. That was the the opportunity I had earned over the the 10 or so, 15 years of, uh, of building the organization. But I surrendered that, and I surrendered it in the name of a true belief that we would get better outcomes if we shared the responsibility than if I retained a unilateral decision-making authority. So I lost more than anybody in terms of giving up some things. But of course, the irony is I gained more than anybody because of where this took us over the next few years in terms of organizational growth and more importantly, cultural re-energization of our people. So if I spoke to someone who was part of your organization before the change and has been part of the organization since, what do you think they would describe on a really practical, fundamental level about the way you conduct yourself as a leader? What are the changes they would see and feel? So I don't have to guess the answer to that. I don't have yep. to make okay. anything up. In fact, in the book, we, uh, we give some of those stories spoken from yep. the, the people's mouths themselves, the before and the after. And uh, I think the the greatest change they would see is that I had to stop giving instructions and I had to, at best, only give opinions. And that became a bit of code language in our organization. (laughs) And and it wasn't just me. It was anybody who had previously held a management title. We had to re-educate them around, of course, share your opinion. Use the benefit of your experience, your intelligence, your foresight. 
and try and empower the room to make the best decision. But if you don't hold the delegated authority and somebody else does to make the decision, then you can't tell them what to do. You can only seek to compel them. You can't instruct them what to do. You can only give your opinion and then retreat and let them decide. So we have 600 people in our organization today. Wow. And and the thought of it is every one of them is a CEO. They're a CEO of some responsibility and nobody can overrule them if we have delegated them that authority to them. That That is the ideal wow, of brave. this organizational structure. It is brave. It's yeah. full of risk. But, you know, yeah. fortune favors the brave. Does it ever bite you on the backside? Of course it does. <laughs> of course it does. So we lost in uh, some of this adventure, we lost literally $1.5 million in some poor transaction. Mm. There's no doubt that hurt and uh, it gave me great cause for reflection and did those people, you know, did I irresponsibly give them authorities when really they weren't up to it? Of course, it doesn't mean I would have made a better decision. Maybe I would have fallen for the same ploy as well. But, um, you know, when you bruise your knee, you kind of think, do I want to get on the bike again? But you have to zoom out and you have to look at all of the trade-offs. And there's almost no substitute for giving freedom to your people because in the freedom, they exercise their opportunities and their, their skills and their passions. And in the net overall result, we get far more gain than we get loss. You use a really lovely phrase in your book. It's simple, but it says so much, overlead and undermanage. And I've already quoted that even before we've had this conversation tonight because I've I've read your book. I, I mentioned it to my wife today and, and she kind of just stopped in the conversation and said, wow, yes, that is what I meant when she was telling a story and talking something through. She said, that's exactly what I mean. Wow, that is so well put. Fantastic. I'm, I'm thrilled it resonates because it's, it's not a phrase I've ever heard used before, but it captures for me the essence of, of our revolution in our workplace because so many people think this new model that we've put in is structureless, and it's not. It has structure. The best way to think of it is the uh, the metaphor of a tent. So tents used to be A-frame with a big pole in the middle, and you'd try and roll out your sleeping bags and move around the tent, but this dirty big pole kept getting in the yeah, way. Yeah. But you needed it to hold the thing up. Well, of course, these days with technology, tents now have poles on the outside. They wrap around. There's still structure, but it's not inhibiting structure. You have freedom of movement inside the tent. And so our spherical model was about leadership more than it was about management. I don't want people to just keep barking instructions or telling people what to do or creating more documents or processes if they lack the greatest energy of all, which is leadership. So overlead, and then you don't need to manage as much. It's and a great so analogy. This is where it came from. Love the tent analogy. All right, now, Jason, I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. The the probably the most difficult question. So many of the our listeners, people who are listening to this right now, are not in your position. They're not entrepreneurs who run their own business. Many of them are, but not a lot of them aren't. A lot of people listening to this podcast are people who work in larger organisations, who lead teams, or want to lead teams but they're part of this overall hierarchy, this structure that they can't just blow up like you did. 
So what lessons from your story can they extract? They lead a team, they're part of a hierarchy, but they've bought in. They see with their own eyes every day how this hierarchy slows them down and crushes the creativity of the people they work with, and they want to do something about it. They want to overlead and undermanage, but they're inside this organism that they don't control. So I, I'm getting this question a lot now that the book's published and out there for a wider audience. I'm getting a lot of people on social media expressing their frustrations, actually, because they feel trapped in the belly of the beast and they yeah. want to apply these transferable principles. And my encouragement is reasonably simple, and that is that if you take a responsible and a respectful tone and you start to lead upwards inside your organization, which is one of disclosing to those around you the value of working more collaboratively, sharing decision-making, and you demonstrate to your colleagues and peers the additional value you can bring when you get to exercise a bit of freedom. In more occasions than less, people start to recognize this is good for everybody. And so you might not overnight incite a leadership revolution like I managed to do, and of course it wasn't overnight, it took two years. But I think what you can do is you can start to subtly shift the nuances of the culture in which you work. And the structure starts to then become diminished in its inhibition or its limiting factors. So you might always have a titled manager in oversight above you, but little by little they will start to realize you are a capable individual, you want to exercise authority, you want to take risks, you own the responsibilities you're given, and therefore they, you actually make them look good, and so they start to give you more rope. And so that's my encouragement to many. And on a practical level, I'm guessing, because it's great advice to, to just be that leader that you want to be, to, to start showing the behaviors for the sort of person that those you report to will want to give authority and freedom to. That's great, really great advice. But I'm guessing also at the same time, if I'm a leader inside a large organization and I manage as far as the org chart is concerned, I manage a number of people, I can kind of set up that atmosphere, that culture within my own team, can't I? Where, yeah, sure, as far as the org's concerned, I'm accountable, I'm the boss, you all report to me. But as far as we're concerned, we're all in this together. We know our role, we know our strengths, we know what we contribute to this team. And that thing that you contribute and you collaborate with us about, you're the CEO of that. You're the boss of that. I will give you my opinion. I will talk you through things. I will, I will be your ear whenever you need it. But ultimately, even though you report to me, you're the boss of that because that's your area of expertise. I think that's entirely possible. In fact, of course, that's what the healthy leaders and managers in organizations all over the world are doing every day despite their structures. yeah. And so the structure is the least significant bit about our story. It seems to be the curious part it that is. people take interest in, but mm. it's, it's the least profound bit of what we created because despite any structure, if you, the leader, set a tone, a culture, and have an influence amongst the people you serve and the people you lead, you can create anything you like. In our, in our, to our advantage, we just happened to be able to craft the structure to reflect or serve that ethos much more neatly. In other organizations, you can make do very, very well. 
So if the structure is the least profound of the things that you achieved and the changes that you made, what is the most profound, Jason? Undoubtedly, it is the emergence of more leadership attributes within our people. Like to me, that, that is the great prize. You know, leading teams is a very dangerous occupation. <laughs> Sun Tzu calls it the art of war. Yes. And you need to be a very brave and tenacious individual to want to lead. But more so, leading leaders is, um, you know, is, is another level again. And I think our great discovery in this process are those attributes of leadership. And so, I think about distributed authority, I think about peer accountability, collaboration, free speech, all of these elements that build transparency and safety, having vision and taking the next hill together. These are all attributes we want to nurture and celebrate in our organization and our structure makes it easy to do that. Other people's structure, you might have to work for it, but leadership is the great profound prize. All right. Now, Jason, my very last question. You are a guy who at every turn in life has taken a situation that most of us would be happy to be in and said, that's not good enough to me and taken it up about 10 levels. You started as a physio, cool job. Most people would love to be a physio. So instead, you created the largest practice in Australia. That wasn't cool enough. So then you created this enormous empire. You franchised physiotherapy when it had never been done before and now you sit as part of this enormously powerful and highly functional sphere. What's next for you? Where, where are you going to take this next? I'm imagining this is not the end of the story. I hope not because, uh, you know, I'm only in the uh, – this is half time, David. I'm in the <laughs> locker room and I'm, you know, having a drink and I'm thinking about what the second half's going to look like. But for us, it, it really now we turn our attention to how we can fulfill that original – vision, which is how do we make a difference amongst some of the most disadvantaged communities. So right now, we, um, we lead the SOS Health Foundation. So in Australia, we would put 80 volunteer health professionals on pro bono mission throughout Indigenous communities across the, north, the, the top end and some very troubled communities like Palm Island off Townsville. And we are working on trying to close the gap on health outcomes there. And we can afford to do that. We have the people, we have the money. We're looking at projects overseas where we you know, really feel for some situations there that we can make a difference in and partner with other people. And so you know, there's always more work to be done, but at its core, it's still a story about people, whether it's people we help, people we serve, or people we empower. It's still all about people, and health is a great vehicle to make a difference in the lives of others. So whatever it is, and I'm sure there's some more business growth and some new channels in, in our brand that we're looking at expanding into. We've gone into New Zealand now. We're looking at some other other uh, services to provide like podiatry and nutrition and other things. Whatever we do, we still want to come back to this ideal of wanting to be significant in the lives of others because what we have, we can't take for granted. Look, I have no doubt whatever you do in the second half of this game will be significant. You've achieved so much. Your story is fabulous. Jason T. Smith, it was a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. That's been fun. Thank you very much, David. And that was Jason T. Smith. Were you as impressed as I was? He's achieved a lot in his career and pretty clearly 
is not about to stand still now. I loved his fresh and practical approach to leading teams and building organizations. And I really appreciated his honest assessment of himself and the things that he has had to develop along the way. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Jason on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, or LinkedIn, and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.